Today we'll be looking at a bit of a tougher passage than normal, so if you are new with us, I am sorry. <laughs> not, I'm not actually sorry, because here at Calvary, we unapologetically teach from the whole counsel of the Word of God. And so even the parts that are more difficult to understand or harder to accept, they are important to us. And so I hope they'll speak to you now, and I hope that you will come back next week if you're new. So, how will the world end? That's a question that both worries us and entertains us, it seems. I was reading a book recently by Jeremy Rene that pointed out how the end of the world has been big business for Hollywood over the years, with many different scenarios in play. And will the world end via asteroid collision, as in Armageddon or Deep Impact, or by pollution or global warming, like in WALL-E or The Day After Tomorrow? Or will we end ourselves with war, as in Dr. Strangelove or Miracle Mile? Or with AI, artificial intelligence, or robots, as in The Terminator, The Matrix, or Avengers Ultron? Or maybe will zombies and aliens prove to be real and potentially end the world? As in, too many to count, but World War Z, The Walking Dead, I Am Legend, War of the Worlds, Independence Day, A Quiet Place, and many superhero movies. Or, in scenarios that hit far too close to home, will it happen as it does in Outbreak and Contagion, Children of Men, The Maze Runner, or Pandemic? which all portray a pandemic threatening to end life as we know it. Are, are any of these realistic? Will any of these actually happen? What do we believe will happen as followers of Christ? Jeremy Rene concludes, When we look into the Bible to see how the world will end, we find something completely unexpected. Our doom won't come from asteroids or robots or viruses or aliens. The end of the world will come from something Hollywood never imagined. A lamb. We're going to see this in detail today. So, in the Bible, John the Baptist once cried out to corrupt religious leaders of his day, Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now think about that question. He was warning about a, a wrath that Jesus would bring to the world one day. The same Jesus whom he called the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We don't necessarily like to think about this side of Jesus, but we must. Because it is coming, and we need to know how to flee or how to escape it. I want you to have an answer to that question. Who warned you? The Word of God did. Today, October 11, 2020. All right. So let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation 6. We recently saw the incredible, majestic scenes of the throne room of heaven in chapters 4 and 5 here in Revelation. John saw Jesus revealed as the Lion of Judah 
and the lamb who was slain. And as such, Jesus had the right, the authority, he was worthy to open the scroll and bring about God's ends on earth. But he hadn't actually done so yet. The scene isn't over. Now he will, as we come to chapter 6. So let's refresh the scene in our minds. If we uh, read a bit of chapter 5, you can follow along with me from verse 3. He said, And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then as the chapter concludes, just worship breaks out across heaven and really everywhere. But then the Lamb starts opening the seals. And while the scene is still incredibly powerful, the effects of the seals aren't as appealing or attractive as we might expect or hope for. Sometimes we may think that the hard times and suffering in this world cast doubt on Jesus' reign. Like, the lamb is on the throne? Yeah, right. Where have you been lately? But as it turns out, it's the very fact that the Lamb is in control that many hard things do happen on earth. And again, as a recurring theme of Revelation, things are not as they seem or as they appear on the surface. Chapter 6, really this whole chapter is about Jesus opening six of the seven seals of God's scroll and thus initiating God's long-awaited, totally deserved judgment on the world. And John starts with the first four seals, which summon the actual four horsemen of the apocalypse. Figures whose hoofbeats have been anticipated and feared or disregarded, mocked, for centuries here, for centuries now. And here's what I believe we can learn from these four horsemen, but really we learn about Jesus, is this. The sovereign wrath of the Lamb is diverse and deadly. The sovereign wrath of the Lamb is diverse and deadly. Starting in verse 1. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals... And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a, a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering 
and to conquer. Now remember, this is apocalyptic literature describing many things symbolically. These are no more literal horsemen than Jesus is a literal lion or lamb. Okay, they, and they, they represent things, they symbolize things, and, and they come in different colors, carrying different accessories or dressed in different things in order to, to represent different things. These judgments are diverse. The first horse, horseman here is perhaps the most confusing of the bunch. We're not sure who he is. He's clearly a ruler with a crown. He has military power with a bow. Some suggest that this is Jesus himself, as Christ is later depicted as riding on a white horse. Others say this is the exact opposite of Jesus. This is the Antichrist or a demon. I think it's actually more likely to symbolize something general, like humanity's lust for conquest. Scholar Grant Osborne explains that in these four horsemen, we see that much of God's judgment is to allow human depravity to run its course. God simply allows human sin to come full circle, turn in upon itself, and self-destruct. If we get too caught up in, in speculation over uncertain things, we can miss the forest for the trees here. And one thing we, we have to see here that we can't miss is the Lamb's sovereignty, his power, his control. Like this only happens once Jesus breaks the seal. The horsemen only come when he says, come, since living creatures are following his lead. And the riders are given, it says. They're given the power to start the destruction of the earth. It said, and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him. And he came out conquering and to conquer. We're going to see the same pattern throughout the four horsemen. They're under Jesus' power and authority. And they only gallop forth as he allows. The second horseman clearly represents war and warfare. Look at it with me, verse 3. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. Notice again, this rider was given a great sword. He was permitted to take peace from the earth. So, in contrast to Rome, who claimed the sword as their own symbol of military might, and in order to enforce peace, the, the Pax Romana, it's actually Jesus that gives or takes peace. So, does this mean then that, that God is responsible for all the horrible bloodshed that's happened in wars? No, God never actually directly does evil or is involved in evil. He literally can't, but he does allow it to operate. He permits it to operate. And really, much of this happens because as Jesus brings his kingdom, it's fiercely resisted. Again, this is our own depravity coming full circle, intensifying with each 
horsemen. Here the lust for conquest turns into all-out war. The third horseman comes in verse 5 and 6. When he opened the third seal, I heard the, the third living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. This horse is often called famine. Essentially, it symbolizes the economic ruin and societal breakdown, which often stems from warfare and results in famine. Even when war ends, it often doesn't mean suffering ends. None the least. Food sources are often decimated. Prices skyrocket. People go hungry. And that's why this horseman carried scales. Why an angel declared exorbitant prices for food, basic food items. Like if these prices were at these costs, one could maybe buy a loaf of bread for a full day's wages. If you wonder why he said, well, don't harm the oil and wine, without going into details, this is essentially say, a picture of things being severe, but not as severe as they could be. The final horseman, though, pulls no punches, takes no prisoners, so to speak. Look at it with me. Verse 7, when he, when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. So this horseman is basically death personified. And Hades, or the grave, is following in his wake, collecting the bodies. It's a grim picture. A grim reaper. But let's recognize again, like this is, this is part of the picture of God's judgment on an evil world. Death is the most natural result of human depravity. You know that from the beginning, from the Garden of Eden. Even death and Hades, though, notice, they are under the Lamb's sovereign control. He holds the keys, as it said earlier in Revelation. They could only take life once they're given authority to do so. Now, you may have noticed, what's with all the fours? You see that? Like these first four seals seem to come as a set with Four living creatures calling forth four horsemen, and this fourth horseman is given authority over a fourth of the earth, and on top of that, he has four weapons of choice to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and wild beasts. Like we, what is with the fours? <laughs> well, much like the number seven, which we've seen a lot of, the number four has symbolic significance. Four is the number of universality or worldwide scope. It makes the point that God's wrath wouldn't just be diverse. It would be global, cosmic even. And all along the way with, with all four horsemen, we see just how 
deadly it proved to be. But perhaps the, the biggest question we have when we read this is, when does all this take place? Like, have these horsemen already been let loose upon the world? Or is this going to take place at some point in the future? I don't know for sure. Here's my opinion, though. I believe that God's wrath against the world will increase over time and ultimately culminate in terrible times of earthly suffering before his return. So in that sense, it could be something future. But I also believe, the Bible is clear on this, that his wrath is already being poured out on evil and, and that it, it's been expressed so many ways throughout history, even today. Like how many conquests Wars, famines, or pestilences have occurred just in recent memory. COVID's killed over a million people in less than a year. And AIDS, the Spanish flu, smallpox, killed hundreds of millions since 1900. Meanwhile, it's estimated that Close to 200 million people have died in war since World War I. And that 70 to 100 million people have died from famine over the same time frame. And we don't even know what shortages will result from what's going on right now. Sam Amadi helps bring this right into this year says this, if, if 2020's pandemic, civil unrest, political decadence, government corruption, and overall tumult has felt a tad apocalyptic, well, that's because it is. These are the characteristics of a demonically influenced old world order, one both raging against and running scared from David's heir. I'm not denying that Revelation lays out prophetic expectations, like future things. It surely does. But even when Revelation describes events just prior to the return of Christ, those events are often the culmination of repeated patterns throughout history. There's a reason every era of human history is dominated by antichrists, false teachers, wars, bloodshed, pestilence, famine, and bloodthirsty political powers. These are patterns that anticipate the final day of God's judgment. Christ's singular ability to open the scroll of heaven and break its seven seals reveals that he is the Lord of history, sovereign over political movements, military conquests, and even global pandemics. By and large, the seals and the horsemen that come from them represent the Lamb's wrath against his enemies, a provisional judgment that he will one day pour out on them without restraint. hope that makes sense to you. Reading this, this does not automatically mean every major disaster is direct judgment from God. Like scripture is clear that we cannot presume to know as much. But all of them are results of the fall and the, the brokenness of a sin-stained world. And all are echoes and warnings of the final wrath of the Lamb. So, what do we make of the four horsemen? If they reveal how sovereign the Lamb is, while also showing us how diverse and 
deadly his wrath can be? What should we do about these truths? How do they apply to us today? Well, for one, I think it should show us just how seriously God takes sin. We only think this is unwarranted or unjust in as much as we underestimate sin. Let me say that again. We only think this is unwarranted or unjust in as much as we underestimate sin. We badly underestimate sin. So we must not tolerate any kind of sin that still clings to us. That we've got to fight it. As it says in Colossians 3, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And listen, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Put them to death. And take this as a a wake-up call in an area that we have been lulled to sleep. Trevin Wax says, All around us, people want to downplay or deny the reality of coming judgment, that God would hold us accountable for our actions, that sin could be punished, that evil would be dealt with, that hell exists, or that anyone might end up there. The denial of judgment was the first trick of the serpent in the Garden of Eden at the beginning of the Bible. Did God really say that you're going to die if you eat the fruit, Eve? No, you're not going to die. How easily people fall, even today, for the devil's propaganda. Sam Amadi encourages us to even consider this ongoing pandemic for how to respond to something like this, saying, the COVID-19 pandemic is yet another iteration of the pestilence described by the fourth seal. Christ is exposing the emptiness of human power and beckoning us to give up worldly hopes. Our world is anything but safe. We shouldn't be surprised by the tumult, we should neither, but neither should we fear it. We can trust our Savior because we know he stands sovereign over all. The Lamb is breaking the seals and commissioning the horsemen to carry out his judgments. We know these trials ultimately come from the sovereign hand of our Lord, the one who will ultimately deliver his people. So the question is, are we trusting him? We trust him. With the fifth seal, we get a big change of pace. No more horsemen, not even any visible wrath, and yet it still reveals more to us about it. Look in verse 9. It says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. I believe we actually see a rather positive 
feature about the wrath of the Lamb here. And I think it helps us understand why God's wrath can be so fierce. See, the inevitable wrath of the Lamb is just and vindicating. The inevitable wrath of the Lamb is both just and vindicating. So after Jesus opens the seal, John sees this gathering of people in heaven under the altar, he says. Now heaven is often likened to a temple in Scripture, the ultimate temple where God dwells, his very presence dwells, and he's worshipped in his glory. And every temple needs an altar. So, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. So why were these people standing under the altar? It's all symbolic, right? But it's because they were martyrs, having died for their Lord, and under the altar is where the blood of sacrifices always ended up. So John is seeing this as the, the death of the martyrs was a, a priestly, sacrificial act of worship for their Lord. The scripture is clear that the believers who make the ultimate sacrifice, laying down their lives, are especially honored in eternity. So then we might wonder... Well, does that mean we should seek martyrdom, aspire to be martyrs? And I would say no. What we must always seek is to be faithful. Be faithful. Faithful to God's word and to our witness of the gospel as they were here. And if suffering or martyrdom comes because of that, then we welcome it. We must be faithful. But just because suffering for Christ ends well, it doesn't mean it's easier or painless now. And it may still seem really unjust and undeserved. That's how these people felt. Aggrieved, wronged, abused, wounded, even angry, like what had been done to them wasn't right. It was atrocious. And so they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They, now, they don't want personal revenge. They were asking for public, holy justice. And they knew that a sovereign holy, true God would not ignore injustice forever. And so they cry out, How long? How long, O oh Lord? Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to what? To the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now, it can be hard for us to grasp the need for the wrath of God from our usually cushy lives. But you know who doesn't have a hard time with it? The persecuted church. 
those who are actually hurt and victimized. You, you don't really feel the need for justice until you experience or at least see injustice. Let's pause here for a minute because reading passages like this, you may well feel that God being wrathful is, is too harsh or too terrible. Like, like this can't be true. But what we don't often think about is that God's wrath is really rooted in God's love. You go, what? No, seriously. Like, it's not only rooted in his holiness, it is, but it's also rooted in his love. David Powlison helped me understand this better recently in his book, Good and Angry. I highly recommend it. In it, he brilliantly explains the internal logic and necessity of God's anger. And he says a, a lot more than I can quote for you today. But I'll try to summarize it for you. So many people today have a totally twisted idea about God's anger and his wrath. He is not ill-tempered or irritable. Like that's us in our anger. That's not God in his anger. But neither is he indifferent. Like God is slow to anger, the Bible says. But he is never indifferent to evil. And he does get angry. As Pallison explains, God's anger follows a certain pattern. It is embedded in tangible goodness and mercy. It arises slowly... And when it arises, it is actually an aspect of his moral goodness. He attacks only what is truly evil. He does great good to all, Matthew 5.45, and only after the insult of endless ingratitude and life-defining rebellion does he cut off evil. There's no contradiction at all between slowness to anger and fierce indignation. In fact, it's because God loves so intensely that he must get angry. That matters, and it's wrong. Without such anger, so-called love would be a bland, detached tolerance. God is angry at those who victimize and oppress others. His anger rights wrongs and overturns injustices. His anger always arises for a good reason. It's never a fit or spasm or brooding hostility just waiting to explode on some innocent, well-meaning bystander. We are hardwired morally to know that some things are plain wrong and need to be dealt with. Far from being a contradiction to love, God's anger comes from love. It's the product of love betrayed when he's the one being done dirty and of compassion for the victims of injustice when others are the ones being hurt. So here in Revelation 6, the saints, the martyrs, appeal to his compassion to bring about vindication. It's, it's totally right for God to judge evil. We know that intuitively. Like, think of Liam Neeson's character in the movie Taken. Okay, when he hears his daughter being kidnapped by human traffickers over the phone, and he gets to talk to her abductor, and he goes, I have a very particular set of skills, skills I have acquired over a very long career. 
skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you don't let my daughter go, I will look for you, I will find you, and I will kill you. And when we hear this, there's something inside of us that goes, yes, go get him, Liam. <laughs> I'm not defending everything he does in the movie, but my point is, we know there are deep wrongs and evils in our world. And we know that wrongs should be repaid. Our problem is, we don't usually view ourselves as the party in the wrong. Because it's not just killing Christians that provokes the wrath of God. All sin does. Because with all sin, we commit treason against heaven's throne. We betray the love relationship we're supposed to have with him. We idolatrously and, and blasphemously say, my will be done. On our own, the Bible says we all live in the passions of our flesh and we are children of wrath. Evil and injustice fully deserve God's wrath. And let's first see that in ourselves. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't feel wronged or, or yearn for justice when we are sinned against. We can and should. Like here is the, the saints cry out for true, just, deserved justice. They're reassured that yes, justice will come. It's inevitable with a holy God after all. But they still have to wait a little longer for it. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who are to be killed as they themselves had been. So they're given white robes symbolizing purity and righteousness. They're told to, to rest a while longer. And what were they waiting for? For the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves. Now that might seem strange to us, but it's a common biblical idea that there is a predetermined amount of sin and wickedness that God will tolerate in his patience before he unleashes his wrath. Similarly, God has a pre-established number of martyrs who will be killed before the end. In other words, he has a sovereign plan. He knows. He cares. And he will vindicate his people. Now, you may or may not be killed for Christ one day. Not likely, but it's possible. But isn't that a comfort for whatever we're going through right now? God has a sovereign plan. He knows. He cares. He will vindicate his people. 
He's got our back. The rest of Revelation 6 shows God answering the prayers of his people for justice. How long until then? We don't know. We do know by faith that it's coming. We know that the sixth seal will be opened, and when it is, the coming wrath of the Lamb is great and terrible. It's 100% just. It's good. But it's great and terrible. Like I said, the, the judgments earlier in chapter 6 of the horsemen, they could allude to, to events past, present, or future. But here the focus is clearly on the future, something coming. This is something yet to come. Nothing like this has ever happened before. Read it with me in verse 12. It says, When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Now, it doesn't really matter how literal or figurative this is. This describes the end of the world. <laughs> there is a, a great earthquake likely a global earthquake. The sun goes dark. You can imagine the chaos that would cause. The moon goes blood red. Scary picture that we associate with the apocalypse. A massive meteor shower hits, many of them likely striking the earth. The sky vanishes as if it's rolled up now, whatever that entails, it's terrifying. And every mountain and island is removed, leveled, crumbled, sunk. A lot of this echoes many Old Testament prophecies about God's wrath coming for the world. And it's often accompanied there by an unprecedented earthquake and a terrifying heavenquake. So, how do people respond? They lose their minds. Look at verse 15. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free. So, everyone left on earth, though there's very good reason to believe that this wrath actually falls only on unbelievers. But John stresses here that no matter who you are, your, your power, your position, your wealth will not save you from God's wrath. Fear is a great equalizer. Divine judgment is even a better one. And even death will sound very attractive at this point. Then the kings of the earth, everyone, okay, everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Now, don't miss there. 
what people are deathly afraid of at the end. Are they afraid of the earthquake, the darkened heavens, the stars crashing to earth? Maybe, probably. But that's not what it says they're terrified of here. It says, they were calling to the mountain and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. They are most afraid of the face of God. And the wrath of the Lamb that accompanies it. Think of all the things that they could be scared of. God scares them the most. As the, the meek, sacrificial lamb now strikingly becomes a wrathful lamb. Like, lambs aren't seen this way usual. Lambs are peaceful, cuddly creatures, totally unthreatening. And yet, people will prefer death by natural disaster to facing this lamb. So as the earth shakes, people scramble into caves, hoping the mountains will bury them. But ironically, every mountain is about to be removed, which means, as one scholar points out, these people are hiding in what is soon to disappear and leave them face to face with God. It's inescapable. And if you are still in your sin on that day, you will not be able to stand before the face of God. It's exactly what the people cry out here. Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? Essentially, who can survive? The Bible often speaks of God's eventual judgment of the earth as the day of the Lord, or the day of the wrath of the Lord. Here, that long-awaited day finally comes, and it is great, and it is terrible. The prophet Joel spoke of it when he said, Let all the inhabitants of the earth tremble, or the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. The earth quakes, the heavens tremble, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Sound familiar? Now, in response to this, you would hope or even expect that this would drive people to repent. That they would fall to the ground humbly pleading for mercy from God. But as we've already seen, that's not what happens. There's no confession. There's no sorrow over sin. No repentance. Just pleas for a quick death. Here's how I want to end today. By warning and pleading with you, because we don't know when this day will come. It could come today, but it's not here yet. It's not here yet. The sun came up this morning. We're all still standing, which means we still have a chance to do the right thing right now. Now, in humbling ourselves, confessing our sin, and trusting in God's mercy. 
Listen to what Joel said. The prophet Joel, soon after those verses above there, he said, The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and it shall come to pass, hear it, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Did you see that? There are those who escape the wrath of God. Some are saved. Though There are survivors. There are those the Lord calls, those who stand. Who are they? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. See, at the end of the day, the wrath of the Lamb is inescapable and yet avoidable. That might sound contradictory. Let me put it another way. The Lamb's wrath will be inescapable on that day. But it is avoidable this day. The sovereign Inevitable, coming wrath of the Lamb is deadly, just, terrible, and yet, hear me, you never need to face it. When we look closer in Revelation, there are those who entirely escape God's inescapable wrath. In chapter 5, it's those ransomed from every tribe, language, people, and nation. In chapter 6, the martyrs are clearly on the inside looking out. And in chapter 7, we see this great, uncountable multitude clothed in white robes who are sealed by God and who avoid the wrath of the Lamb. We'll get there next week. Now, so how can we... Avoid this. How can we avoid the Lamb's wrath? Something so universal and something so deserved. There's only one answer. And it goes back to the way Jesus is identified in this chapter. We've got to get under the blood of the Lamb. We have to get under the blood of the Lamb. Because he already bore the full wrath of God on our behalf while dying on the cross. I don't think that just affected then. That affects that day. He bore the wrath for us. His perfect sacrificial death was the only way God's wrath could be satisfied. And it was. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. By his blood, he ransoms us away from sin and death and judgment and transforms us into his holy people. So, if Jesus took the wrath of God for us, why will it still be dealt out so fiercely one day? Because multitudes of people have rejected and are rejecting and will reject the Lamb. And Christ says in John 3.36, 
Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So Jesus provides us an escape route. But if we don't take it, the wrath remains inescapable. It remains on us. Like Revelation 6 is really all of our destinies, if not for Jesus Christ. Warren Wearsby says, If men and women will not yield to the love of God and be changed by the grace of God, then there is no way for them to escape the wrath of God. My intent today is not to scare you into the kingdom. If that's what it takes, that's what it takes. My intent is to warn you. My hope, most of all, is to drive you to the love and grace and kindness and mercy of the Lamb that can be poured out on you today. So if you called on Jesus' name, if you called on the name of the Lord, and if we have, how blown away are we by his mercy? Just how thankful are we? Heavenly Father, please, please move in our hearts. Draw us to repentance in your kindness. Lead us away from this world's vision of success and happiness and joy and show us yours. Do we see our desperate need of grace? And at the same time, see the amazing love that sent you, that you sent your son to die for us. Thank you for your body. Thank you for your blood. We pray in Jesus' name.